Welcome back to the Daily Traders Podcast. I'm your host, Mark, and today I have a very special co-host, Cody. Cody, uh, welcome. Glad to thank have you. Thank you. Thank you. Yep. Cody was on uh, earlier, actually in the summer. We yep. shot two episodes together. So it's good to have you back. And today we have a very uh, special guest, Taylor Sons, um, who is the founder of Life Goal Investments. Taylor, glad to have you. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to do this, guys. Big yeah. fans. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. So yeah, Cody actually was the one who reached out. He saw your Instagram, you know, really loved what you guys were putting out there as far as education. And so we're really happy to have you on. And I just want to kick things off by talking about your story, how you got to where you are. Yeah, yeah. Thanks so much for the opportunity. Yeah. So I grew up as a redneck in a one red light town, uh, believe it or not, <laughs> okay. literally one red light in upstate <laughs> New York. And then uh yeah, sports brought me to Iona University where I went to college and uh, I played football there and I did an undergrad and a grad degree, both in finance. And from there, I went right to work on Wall Street. So I spent 10 years running around big firms on Wall Street that are the big asset managers like Mason, Franklin Templeton, Lord Abbott, et cetera. And my role there was to run around the country and work with some of the richest families there were, period. Families that have 50, $100 million dollars. And my role was what they called an advisor consultant. So mm -hmm. I would work with a financial advisor as the specialist when it comes to portfolio construction. So we would sit down and look at what stocks, bonds, commodities they have inside their portfolio. And I would say, hey, you're lacking X, Y, Z, whatever it may be. And we would plug something in there to make that portfolio more of an all-weather tire to perform in any economic environment. So that was that was my role. So I was a, a portfolio guy to, to build portfolios for ultra-rich clients. And so that was great. That was awesome. Made great money. Um, saw a lot of the country, which was a lot of fun. And then again, I grew up as a redneck, right? <laughs> One red light town. All my buddies still live in that town and they have a thousand dollars, five thousand, a hundred thousand dollars. And they're like, Taylor, like, we need your help, man. Like, we need your help that you're giving these rich people. Mm -hmm. And it's just, I didn't have the time to allocate to them. And so eventually I said, you know what? That's enough of this Wall Street game. Like those people are going to be fine regardless. They have 50, $100 million. My buddies that have $5,000 that are trying to grow towards retirement, let's do the exact same thing I did for those people that have $100 million, but just package it inside of one single ETF and put it on any platform, Robinhood, Schwab, wherever you trade at $10 a share. And you can have that sophisticated all-weather tire portfolio. So let me nice. shut up. That's that's kind of where we are. That's life goal investments in a nutshell. That's my background in a nutshell. Little redneck that went to Wall Street and now <laughs> I'm doing my own thing at, at life goal investments. That's awesome. All right. So quick disclaimer, we are not financial advisors. Nothing said in this podcast should be taken as financial advice. The full disclaimers is in the description below. On with the episode. All right. How do you choose the stocks that go inside those ETFs? Like, you know, we were talking before in the pre-show, you know, this is solely, as far as what I do, I'm only a technical trader, whereas everything you do is based off fundamentals. And so yep. when you're looking at a stock, you know, give us like three things that you're looking for to, you know, then put that in one of your three ETFs. Yeah, I think the bigger piece of it to begin with is looking at the portfolio as a whole. So what we build are, are what we call multi-asset ETFs. So inside of each one of them, you're going to have a combination of stocks, bonds, commodities, and real estate. Okay. So it's important not just to understand why we're choosing one of the individual stocks, but it's how does it react with everything else inside the portfolio, right? Mm -hmm. You have to know the correlation between the different asset classes to determine whether this is going to make your portfolio as a whole more 
less volatile, more economically sensitive, less economically sensitive, whatever it may be. So think about it this way. I'll give you a good example. So because we own bonds inside our portfolio, bonds are interest rate sensitive. So as interest rates go up, bonds sell off, right? So because of that, the stocks that we want to own inside the portfolio can't be as interest rate sensitive Got it. because the correlation there would be too high. And when interest rates went up, they all would sell off simultaneously and you can't have that. So therefore we have a lack an underweight, as they call it, to tech stocks. Tech stocks are incredibly interest rate sensitive. Mm -hmm. And therefore, we don't want as big of exposure to tech stocks because that correlates too highly with the bonds on the other side of the portfolio. Uh, okay. All right. Cool. Nice. So it's, it's, it's again, it's, it's again, the, the nuances of, of taking the 30,000 foot view yeah. as opposed to delving down into the individual stocks. Now, when it comes to the individual stocks, we have a lot of techniques that we use to select those. But again, it comes from that lens of what do they do for the portfolio as a whole? And we look at a, a lot of different things. So one, we're looking at the actual earnings. Mm -hmm. So the underlying earnings of the company and the direction of, of where they're going. Is this company growing their earnings, shrinking earnings? You look at the market in general right now, earnings are down year over year. Mm -hmm. We just hit Q4 earnings season. And as a whole, you have negative about 5% earnings year over year versus last year. The economy is shrinking. Let's be realistic about what's going on here. And when you look at the expectations by companies, negative surprises have been presented by 81 of the companies positive surprises have only been presented by 25 of the companies in the S&P 500. So again, we have to be realistic about where things are going and we're analyzing that underlying earnings information. And that's what dictates what goes inside the portfolio as a whole. And then maybe more akin to how you guys look at things, we do look at things like relative strength. That's more of a technical yep. analysis. Is this high relative strength or low relative strength and which direction is it moving at this point? So with this ETF, uh, you guys aren't constantly buying and selling it, you know, if the market's down or, or, you know, you're just constantly slowly buying in to this ETF. Now, do you buy into anything else besides just your ETF or is it specifically just the ETF? So inside of the ETF, in, inside of the three ETFs that we manage, we'll buy underlying stocks like mm -hmm. we just talked about there. We'll also add ETFs within our portfolio if we can't build it ourselves effectively. Mm -hmm. So like emerging market debt, we have a significant position to emerging market debt. That's not something where we're going out and buying Malaysian bonds individually. Like that's yeah. not what we're going to do, right? Um, so because of that, there's underlying ETFs within the portfolios as well. Okay, got it. How many stocks, um, you know, are kind of comprised inside one of your ETFs? Because is it a, is it a th sure. I know people are listening. Is it a thousand, ten thousand, or is it fifty? Yeah. So I'll put it this way: inside of each one of our ETFs is over ten thousand individual holdings. Wow. Okay. So it's it's a massive amount. Now, some of that is the outright individual companies, and some of that is embedded within other ETFs that we have in the portfolio to plug particular sectors where we can't buy those individual companies outright, whether it's you know emerging markets is another good example there, whatever it may be. Okay. Got so it. if I wanted to go buy your ETF, how would I go about doing so? It's one single ticker symbol. Buy it just like you can buy Apple stock on any platform. 34 basis points is the management fee. So again, inside of 34 basis point management fee, you're getting the exact same portfolio that we were providing to families that have 50, $100 million. We are not trying to outsmart the market. What we're trying to do is create a lesser volatility profile and therefore nice. keep people's butts in the seats, limit the downside in the tough times via bonds, gold, right? Those asset classes hold yep. up really well in recessions. So that's what we're trying to do is create that all-weather tire so people can just compound wealth over time and be that 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 easy button, if you will. 
So we just had some pretty big news lately. Um, one of the <laughs> Silicon <laughs> Valley yeah, Bank. Yeah, yeah, you're not uh, you're not overstating. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so can you tell me uh, a little bit about that? Silicon Valley Bank yeah, going under. I, I assume you're talking about the bank collapses that we've yeah. seen, mm-hmm. two of them in this country, yeah. right? And then Credit Suisse over in, in Swiss, uh, Switzerland got bailed out by their national bank where they <laughs> may have joined the, the party there. Yeah, so this is all a function of inflation. So like when you take it at its deepest root, this all comes from inflation. So inflation has therefore caused the Fed to increase r- interest rates massively over the past year, right? Now we're at about 5% on interest rates where it came from zero. Now, what this has done is caused systemic problems in the underlying banking industry. When you take money and deliver it to a bank and deposit it, they pay you something like 0.01%, right? And then what they do is they take a piece of that money and they go out and they buy bonds in the market. Now, this is fine when they're seeing inflows and more deposits than they are withdrawals. But what's happened over the last year is the Federal Reserve took up interest rates, thus there's an inverse relationship with bond prices driving them down and crushed the bonds that these managers or that these banks hold. And then simultaneously, now they're getting a pickup in withdrawals and therefore having to sell these bonds at discounted prices and not having the solvency to meet the withdrawal requests that are being created by their depositors. So it's it's really like a cash flow situation more than it is anything else, because those bonds are largely treasury bonds. So they will come due at par if they were able to hold them to par, but they're being forced to sell them right now at a time where they're massively discounted. So what the FDIC and the Fed has stepped in and said is, hey, we'll buy those bonds from you. They might be trading at 95 right now. We'll buy them from you at 100 and you'll be clear. That's par value. And you'll have the solvency and liquidity to then pay out your depositors when they ask for withdrawals. And we'll just hold them on our balance sheet until they mature, and we'll get back that $100 par value. So does that mean this bank is done, or can they make a recovery in the future, do you think? The only way this bank is not done, Silicon Valley Bank, is if they get bought. That's the only, and and if they get bought, they get acquired. I mean, this happened back in, back in 2008 across the industry and JP Morgan, you know, buys Bear Stearns, right? Mm -hmm. Bear Stearns collapsed in 2008. The Bear Stearns name never existed after that. It just rolled up into JP Morgan. And what these bankers did, like, yes, they mismanaged their bond portfolios, no doubt about it. But when you look at it, Silicon Valley Bank was one of the fastest growing banks from 2018 till now. Why were they so fast growing? Because what happened was they have massive venture capital money on their balance sheet. And venture capital was a craze for startups. So startup tech companies in the Silicon Valley were taking in massive flow from venture capital and they were depositing it in that bank. That's what caused this massive growth rate. And it was a gift and a curse because as they were taking in all this money, they have to invest it in bonds. That's what banks do. And bond yields were super, super low. And then as the Fed cranked up yields, that obviously crushed the bond market on the other side. So their success in asset growth at a time when bond yields were super low is inevitably what led to their demise, which is crazy to say. And and, and granted, I'll go back to the original comment, like the bankers screwed up as well. They should have managed their liquidity profile better. Mm-hmm. But it was a real timing disaster for them. Their growth rate came at the exact so worst time. they didn't time. commit like any criminal activity like the guy from FTX did, right? Right. No, they didn't. But there was some shady stuff that 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 happened. There was massive sales of equity within the week prior to the CFO yeah. sold a massive position in the equity, and the CFO is the person that has the closest lens to what's going on inside inside the bank's 
bond portfolio. So that's that's something that will be criminally investigated. That's insider trading on information where you know your bank is going down because they did. So what mm-hmm. so so what caused this? The, the the fire alarm went off because they realized they didn't have enough liquidity to meet withdrawals. Mm-hmm. So what they did was they said, okay, we're going to issue a new round of stock and bring in equity, just dollars, sell off piece of our bank to yep. bring in money to fund this cash flow situation that we're that we're currently facing. Yep. And what happened was the alarm bells went off and the market was like, whoa, 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 we're not idiots. We see directly through what you're doing. And in that day that they mentioned that, that was last Thursday now, mm-hmm. there was a $42 billion run on the bank. $42 billion were removed from that bank in one day. <laughs> That's incredible. Oh my God. <laughs> And wow. it was only, you know, they only had something like $172 billion in deposits. Mm-hmm. So what is that? A quarter, a quarter of their depository base got removed in one day. Banks aren't set up to do that. And that's why, that's why the Federal Reserve had to step in and stop this gap because banks don't hold as much cash on hand or liquid securities on hand to fund all of their depositors if they were to come and withdraw their money. And so the Fed had to step in and back it and kind of thwart a more massive run on the bank. But this is not a unique issue. Now, granted, Silicon Valley Bank had massive growth rates, which compounded their problem. But this is not a unique issue to Silicon Valley Bank. Mm -hmm. Bond portfolios are what all banks hold. And regional banks have a lower level of regulation than the biggies like JP Morgan, Goldman, et cetera, do. And therefore, those are the ones that are being stressed in the market. And if you look at ticker KRE, that's the regional bank uh, sector ETF. It's been eviscerated, right? It's been absolutely hammered. And then everyone's like, okay, it's 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 done. On Tuesday, it bounced. And then Wednesday, sold off again because Credit Suisse has now had their major backer, which is the Saudis. The Saudis stepped away and said, we're not doing this. We just saw what played out in the US. Yeah. Like, we know you guys are in the same shape. We're not going to continue to back you guys. And, and that absolutely plummeted Credit Suisse. And then what happened there was the Swiss bank, Swiss national bank stepped in and funded Credit Suisse on the back end to keep them afloat. Wow. So do you see this happening like with more banks coming up? Like, are we headed into some like seriously dangerous water? So it's a good question. I'm not I'm not by any means trying to sit here and and create some huge scare tactic, but I do (laughs) think more banks are going to come under pressure. And I think what you'll do is I think you'll wind up seeing two things play out because of this more regulation on regional banks. They have to have them a higher level of liquidity at all times to fund withdrawals. Like this has become very evident. And bond prices, you know, generally bonds are a relatively safe asset class. Last year, bonds had their worst year of all time, of all time. Wow. Literally, of all time. So um, they were down 11, 12%, 13%, depending on what bonds you look at. But that was the ballpark of what the broad bond index was down last year. And the worst year prior to that, was 1994, they were down less than 3%. Wow. So last year, they were down four times as much as their worst year of all time, which is what caused this banking situation that's such a disaster. And so like the other part of this is on the other side of the economy, right? When you're looking at this, this is an economic issue. Mm -hmm. On the other side of the economy is the consumer. And what's going on with the consumer right now? The consumer is getting hit with massive amounts of inflation. For 23 straight months now, 23 straight months, wage increases, have not kept up with inflation. And therefore, people are starting to withdraw money out of the banks to fund their lifestyle. That's what's causing this withdrawal rate pickup that we're seeing that's causing these banks to have to sell bonds into the market at deeply discounted prices, 
creating a solvency issue. Okay, so for someone like me, just like, you know, I'm a retail investor, should I be worried about my money in the bank? So no, I think that the depositors are probably going to be fine regardless of what bank you're at. Mm -hmm. I do feel more comfortable if it's my own money yep. having it in a larger institution. Yeah. Okay. So one, they're they're more heavily regulated. Mm -hmm. But two, if JP Morgan Chase goes out of business, it would be the end of our economy. You know, like that's yeah. <laughs> maybe a stretch to <laughs> right. say, but you get what I'm saying. Yeah, the exactly. federal government will absolutely not let that happen. They are too big to fail. They will be stop gapped. Um, right. More so than what you're seeing with the Silicon Valley Bank, where they just end up paying depositors out of this. Silicon Valley Bank, if you own equity in that, it's it's gone. Yeah. Yeah. It's gone. I heard a Go lot ahead. of people um, were buying options on the bank and then they were expiring worthless. So they would like they thought they'd struck gold and then they expired worthless and they lost the entire amount of their contracts. Yep. And people are asking us, like, I hate to say it, but like one of the problems that retail investors have over time is they simply take on too much risk, yep. right? Mm -hmm. it, it is what it is. It's like a bug to a bug light. Mm -hmm. In 2021, everyone wanted to own everything that was the highest risk possible because it was yeah. going to the moon <laughs> and their cab driver was saying, yep. I'm killing you back there. <laughs> look at my portfolio, look at yours, whatever it is. And then what happens is they get over their skis and risk, 2022 comes and cuts their knees out from under them. Yep. And they're like, all right, I'm out. And that's like the game that perpetually plays over time, which is why people need folks like yourself that yep. are just educating them on, listen, these are the realities of the market. So you have to be able to keep your butt in the seat by diversifying your portfolios via options, or we tell people to diversify via bonds um, being the main, the main proponent that we advocate for. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, like you need that diversification agent. So you're not getting your knees cut out from on you when we have tough times. Okay. Right. All right, so this episode is sponsored by thedailytraders.com. Now, if you guys are interested in learning how to trade in the stock market and seeing my exact trades, okay, those of you who are interested, I will put a link in the description below where I post my entries and my exits, and you'll get access to 30 plus videos breaking down my entire trading system. But hope you guys are enjoying the episode and let's get on with it. As far as diversification, you wanna talk about crypto? Do you think Bitcoin is gonna be a safe haven if everything else goes to shit? <laughs> so it's an interesting question. Um, I think I probably have a little different take than most people do. Sure. Um, I look at data, right? I'm a data guy. I, I'm not a narrative guy. So like I, I totally get, I took an eight hour class on crypto. I know you guys have a lot more education on it than I do. I took an eight hour class probably two years ago and I tried to really wrap my head around it and I just, I couldn't get there. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm a fundamental guy. So uh, I grew up, you know, looking at balance sheets, et cetera. And, and that's just not there with Bitcoin. And it's not to say that it can't be a great asset class over time. And it's catching a massive bid right now as people think, hey, the banking system's shuttering, whatever it may be, this digital asset class is going to take over. My take on this, take it for what it's worth, but I'm going to be honest with you, is that crypto is a risk on assets. And irrespective of what's going on in the economic backdrop, if it's a risk on trade, crypto will do well. If it's a risk off trade, crypto will do poorly. So let's look back to 2022. 2022, crypto was the ultimate inflationary hedge, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. That was the narrative. Yep. What happened in 2022? It was down 62%. Mm -hmm. What happened in 2021 in a massive bull market rally is crypto was up, what, 62% that year, I think? So it went from yeah, the stock market's up, crypto's up. Yeah. In 2022, the stock market's down, crypto's down. In 2023, so far this year, the stock market's up, crypto's up. I tend to be under the belief 
that we are actually going into a recession. Mm-hmm. And with that, risk off trades come on. And what you have is a risk off trade, in my opinion, looming. With that, I think Bitcoin probably gets that risk off trade. Yeah. And it happens to a wider extent, called beta, mm-hmm. the amount, the magnitude of the move. It happens to a wider extent than stocks. So stocks go up, crypto goes up more. Stocks go down, crypto goes down more. So like 2008 scenario, the last real recession that we saw, right? 2020 was a manufactured 45-minute recession. So I'll take that one and throw it out. (laughs) But the last real recession we saw in 2008, stocks were down 37.5, 37 37.5%. Yeah. Right? So what do you expect out of Bitcoin? Again, I might not be right. This narrative and the banking system meltdown might, you know, prop up Bitcoin and and keep it moving upwards. But um, I look at the data and how things react to the market and to the economy. And that tells me Bitcoin, crypto in general is a risk on trade. Yeah, absolutely. Especially when you're investing in any other coin that's not Bitcoin or Ethereum, like all these little AKA shit coins, you know, they're they're called shit coins for a reason, you know? (laughs) And, and, And people treat them as like an actual like, solid investment when in reality, you know, crypto is supposed to be a currency and there's nothing that actually gives it value. So when some, you know, when they're pumping up Dogecoin, for an example, or Shiba Inu, you know, it's like, okay, great. You know, you you can ride the train to the top, but then everyone's always like, oh, I wish I would have bought more, but they they don't know how to trade. So then they, they just, they hold it all the way up and then they hold it all the way down. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yep. And yep. JP yeah. Morgan put out some really good content last year and it broke down um, demographics of crypto buyers. And it also broke down the entry point where the most capital of new buyers went into crypto. Mm-hmm. You want to take a flyer as to where they bought? The top. <laughs> $68,789. Oh, wow. Literally, the, top. the absolute top wow. simultaneously happened with the most new entrant of buyers. And I'm not saying like, I'm saying the day, $68,789. Yeah, I, I mean, in a way, you know, that's insane, but that just shows, you know, like most of those people are just probably, you know, people that just, you're, you're everyday people who know nothing about investing in stocks, nothing. And, you know, their their aunt was like, hey, I, I'm up 50% on you know, crypto, I made $500. Yep. Like you should invest your whole bank account into yeah, it. It makes sense. Yep. You, you, you know, it. and it's like, no, like don't do that. And then, you know, I was actually one of the people who cashed out in October and I haven't, I've been all cash since and I'm just rooting for the market to go down so I can buy more at the bottom, you know? I, I tell you, so again, I'm not a believer in crypto, so I did not place this trade, but the only time I ever wanted to enter crypto and, you know, hindsight, I, I wouldn't be telling you this unless it was positive. Right. So mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like, take that for what it's worth. Okay. But so crypto came down and it hovered at 16,000 and it stayed, it just bumped along, bumped along, bumped along, bumped along. And there was some negative news that hit on crypto in that time frame. And I said, listen, I think a good way to trade this is put a stop loss at 15,000. If it breaks through there, you're out, you've lost, you know, a thousand dollars per coin, whatever it is. But I think this is seemingly a point that has some variability to it where, or some, some downside kind of floor to it, resistance. And it did obviously rally out of that. Um, again, I wouldn't have been telling you about that unless it was positive. So therefore, take it for what it's worth, just like your, your aunt telling you I've made 50 grand. Yeah. Like, people don't <laughs> tell you the stories when they're wrong, right? Yeah, but right. Um, 
nonetheless, like that was one time where I was like, I actually would consider putting an investment in here. But again, I just can't get my arms around the fundamentals and therefore I, I can't invest. All right. How are your ETFs holding up right now? Well, well, really, really well. Nice. Yeah, very well. So since inception, our ETFs, we have three of them, yep. right? So uh, the two big ones are Wealth, W-L-T-H, and Saven, S-A-V-N. And then the last one is more specific. It's built specifically for someone who is saving for a home down payment. We can talk about it if you want. We don't have to, though. It's H-O-M. All three of them, all three of them, since they were incepted in September of 2021, mm-hmm. have outperformed the S&P 500, the Bloomberg Barclays Aggregate, which is the bond index, and the MSCI World, which are global stocks. So wow. all three of them have outperformed all three of those major asset classes. Wow. Well, I'll have to check them out after this pod. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so- please do. Um, again, like... This is the, what we tried to do is create the easy button. So this is not your, Hey, like I'm going to get rich on this. Mm -hmm. This is not that this is your core. Like each one of them are meant to be held in their own right as a single position that could occupy an entire portfolio. Literally Uh, every one of them has stocks, bonds, commodities, and real estate. Wealth is one where you look at, Hey, I've got five plus years to invest. I'm just looking to grow my wealth over time. Well, if you're looking to say, Hey, inside of three years, I'm going to use this money to do whatever, buy a car, go on vacation. Like, I don't know. I might need access to this money. Saving, as the name alludes to, mm-hmm. is a much lower nice. volatility profile, more conservative portfolio with more bonds inside of it. Okay. And then the home, H-O-M, you want to break yeah, that so down? Yeah. So this is the coolest one to talk about. It's it's maybe not quite as broadly a- applicable to investors, but if you are looking to buy a house, yeah. this is how this one's broken down. This is cool. So home is... Uh, call it about 30% stocks, okay. about 60% bonds, and then about 10% split predominantly between gold and real estate. But the interesting thing about, about this home down payment is like, if you're buying this, this is because you're going to place a home down payment or maybe remodel a home. So what the unique piece of this is, is the stock allocation. That's about 30% of the portfolio. Half of it is specifically correlated to home prices. So if home prices go up, which is the underlying product that you're going to be buying, you want to hedge against that increase in home value. So why not have a Home Depot, Home Builders, Sherwin-Williams? Think about this. Like if home prices are going up, there's more demand for homes. More people in Home Depot buying two-by-fours to build new homes. It's a direct offset and hedge. Like you think about like where did this idea come from? It came from the airlines business. The Mm -hmm. airlines business hedges oil prices because they know their underlying cost is heavily tied to oil. So if oil goes up, it's negative on their underlying profit margins. And therefore, they hedge that by purchasing oil to offset that risk. That's exactly what we're doing inside of home with that home sleeve that is really heavily correlated to, with, with, again, half the stock position that's heavily correlated to home prices. Okay. So between, okay, you've got yourself. You said you have eight people on your team. How does that break down into, you know, who, who's actually going through every day, you know, looking at all the fun, fundamentals of all these stocks, looking through the bonds, figuring out what's actually going to go into this uh, ETF itself. What's the time that goes into that? Does this take you, you know, a couple of days to choose a new stock to throw in it or a couple months, many eyes on that stock or bond? Yep. Yep. So there's a lot of third party research that goes into it. Yep. And then there's firsthand research. And Part of my role is I kind of provide the the macro view, if you will, the macroeconomic view mm-hmm. to give us an idea of like, hey, I think the economy is going here, right? 
And and to be clear also, before I get down this rabbit hole, like our portfolios are pretty strategic, meaning they're not tactical. They're mm-hmm. not being a lot of traded in and out. Like our asset allocation stays pretty steady. And okay. that creates more predictability in the product because again, this is meant to be kind of a one-stop shop for someone to grow wealth over time. So you don't want my opinion necessarily to be wrong and have the portfolio blow up. Now we will make tactical changes on the fringes. So with that, that's part of my main role is providing that kind of top down, here's where we think the economy is going. And we'll make again, fringe changes to the portfolio based upon that. But when it comes to the stock selection, that's a whole team effort. Um, We have a a little group of people that specifically do only individual stock research. Mm -hmm. And with that, what we're trying to do again is, is just get that idea of, okay, we think the economy is going here because of that. We would like XYZ asset class or, or sector of stocks, go find the best ones. And sometimes it's months long and sometimes we make decisions much quicker. It, it obviously, you know, depends on what's going on in the market. Things get blown out. Like we didn't do this, but like it may have changed if we were very interested in the financial sector. Schwab got absolutely torched the other day, was down 15% in one single day. Like that may be something where we're able to make a quicker decision on it. Yeah. Because, hey, the opportunity is here and now. Mm-hmm. We think Schwab's business model is sound. We could, you know, we could have bought it. We didn't. I'm not, that's just a really good example in mm-hmm. the short term of, of potentially how you make a, a quicker decision. Whereas is, when it's kind of steady as she goes market, like you're allowed more time to digest earnings, fundamentals, et cetera. Okay. Um, question, why start an ETF instead of say, create like a private wealth management firm, start a fund? Good question. You know, go that direction. What made you choose the ETF direction? So I worked with financial advisors for 10 years, 11 years, right? That was my role is to come in as the portfolio specialist to work for them. Nothing against them, but the the revenue generating model that they have doesn't allow them to work with anyone less than generally a half a million dollars of investable assets. So the underlying people under that dollar amount are left completely out high and dry. And so let me just break down the numbers for you. I'll use $100,000. You know, client has $100,000 to invest. If they go to a financial advisor, a financial advisor generally charges them 1%. So that means they make about $1,000 a year. Mm -hmm. It's probably four meetings a year and a lot of it front end loaded to get that business in the door. And then, oh, by the way, they split 50% of that with their firm. So they give 50% of the firm, they keep 50%. They've made $500 off that client. Wow. They've done five, six meetings with them, hounded them to bring their money over there. Like that isn't a revenue generating model that you can take to scale. Sure. And so because of that, they fish for bigger fish in deeper waters. They want clients that have a million dollars, $10 million, et cetera, because that 1% is still there. And that's a much higher number off of a $10 million base than it is a $100,000 base. But because of that, the financial advisor population has underserved the people that don't have as much money. And it's not their fault. The money isn't to be there to be made off of it. So why didn't we, why couldn't we just step in and say, hey, we'll do exactly what the financial advisor does for you, mm-hmm. but do it inside of one single ETF yep. that's available for anyone at $10 a share. It's the same model. It's just broken down into an ETF. We're doing the exact same thing. And by the way, we're doing it at 34 basis points, 0.34%. Okay. So break down how you're making money for someone who knows yeah, you know, nothing about this business model. How are you making money on people buying your ETFs? Yep. So every single day. So again, let me, let me take it back one step. Mm-hmm. 0.34% yep. is what comes to life goal investments. Yep. So if you have $10,000 and you invest it with us and you keep it there for one whole year, mm-hmm. 
we make $3.40 off of you. Got it. Wow. Like that's, that, that's the numbers and how that works. So at the end of the day, like most people, I think, look at that and go like, oh, that's, that's really stomachable. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. $3 and 40 cents. Like that's, you know, I pay a cup of coffee for that. Right. So, um, but every single day, a very small fraction of that $3 and 40 cents comes out. So every single day, again, there's, there's 250 trading days in a year about, yeah. we get, you know, one 250th of $3 and 40 cents on that size of account. But the good thing about wow. this is, is it aligns our interests with our clients, right? Mm-hmm. Because if their asset base grows and doubles, our essentially management fee also doubles along with it. So we want to push up their asset base, grow their wealth over time, because that also generates more money for life goal investments. Nice. Yeah, I I, re- I really like how that's all all laid out. You know, it's not like the old Wolf of Wall Street days where you know they're taking like fifty percent of your money. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you know, we're not slamming champagne and 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 tossing yeah. people around the office like they were in Wolf of Wall Street, <laughs> right? Awesome, and, 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 yeah, and rampantly using drugs. <laughs> we're, we're nerds. I got two little kids at home, a dog, and a wife. Like, yeah, I, I've actually seen I've on. actually seen your uh, Instagram reels. It, it, it's it's cool. You know, you live on a really nice ranch, and it's a nice place. I'd love to live there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That, so the thing I do with those, so like. For those that haven't seen our Instagram um, or or TikTok, um, I so I, I was doing that. I was doing Instagram and TikTok reels in front of this, like a newscaster. Yeah, and people were like, "I don't give a shit." Like this this guy just annoys me because he's sitting in front of here acting like he's on CNBC. And then I was like, one day I was like, you know, this thing isn't growing. Yeah. Um, so I'm getting annoyed, and I was like, you know what? Let me grab my phone. And I was like, screw it. I'm just going to go out and walk and talk about what's going on in the market today. <laughs> and as I did that, I brought the dog. I was like two birds, one, st- one stone, get a, get a walk for the dog in. And that was the first reel that we had that started to like kind of get a little bit viral. Nice. Now, you know, every, every post that we put out is getting, you know, 100,000-ish views between TikTok and Instagram. Some of them are going to a million and we're getting, you know, hundreds of comments. So like, you know, it's just... It, it's just what the market wanted. They wanted me to be more genuine than I was when I was here, like a nerd <laughs> nice. sitting here and be like, bam, bam, bam. Here are the I love the way you put that. You're like, it's just what the market wanted. And that's what people don't yeah. realize when they're trying to create content is like, yo, you have to make what the market wants. It's not always about what you want to make, you know? Right. I thought I was doing a better job before, mm-hmm. honestly. Yeah. Like I, I could still look at it and say like in a shorter period of time, you were getting more information out of me. The information was just as good. But the market was like, dude, I want to know you're a human being too. Yeah. And yeah. that was, that was what comes across <laughs> exactly. in like my, my nature walks or whatever it is. Yeah, sure. That's funny. So how are you going about besides social media? I'm assuming that's a huge part of your, you know, advertising and putting the names out there for these ETFs. Are there any other verticals at which you're using to market to get the name out there? Yeah. And, and let me clarify one thing on the social media front to begin with here. Like the social media thing is not a, that that's just a brand awareness and education thing. Like okay. if you watch our reels, like we're not like, Hey, here's what wealth builder is. Here's yeah. why you have to use it. Like yep. we never talk about our ticker symbols inside our social media ever. Okay. Nice. And so the only intention there is to say like, here guys, let me explain what CNBC does a poor job of explaining mm-hmm. because the layman and lay woman doesn't understand what the hell they're saying. Yeah. So let me break things down in like simple bites that you can understand in a tangible way. And that's what people have liked us for. So 
that's just growing brand recognition and educating the public in general. Like that's our, our mission on there. Okay. And then when it comes to, again, but that does nonetheless grow, hopefully the brand awareness of life goal. And people do ask questions like, what do you guys actually do? And, and we'll talk to them about that. Mm -hmm. But the other thing that we do is we create partnerships with the online brokerage platforms. Okay. So the online platforms, everyone does trading on, like that's another avenue that we've taken creating partnerships there to have our name be in prominent places so people can see it. Okay. All right. And then we've also like full disclosure, we've also done like, you know, the Google ad game and stuff like that as well. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Absolutely. Cool. We always like asking this question and you are forgetting it because you forgot to put it in your notes. Go for what it. What are your three favorite books, Taylor, that, um, oh. that you could recommend to our audience or just to anyone? Yep. So am I just answering this? Yeah. 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 yeah, go, yeah, for yeah go for it. Okay. Yeah. I didn't know the, the setup there. Yeah. So first of all, <laughs> far and away, the only one I ever talk about, the only one I ever talk about is the psychology of money when it comes to investing. Mm-hmm. It's, it's by Morgan Housel. Uh, Morgan does an absolutely phenomenal, phenomenal job breaking things down into layman's terms. It's 18 chapters. There's a lesson that you take away from every one of them when it comes to financial and how you deal with your money but it's not crushing you with data or anything like that. He's mm-hmm. telling you regular everyday stories that he experienced in his life and then twists in at the end. Like, and by the way, here's the financial lesson that comes from this. He's a phenomenal, phenomenal writer. Um, my other two favorite books, I'm going to, I'm going to stray away from the financial side of the game sure. is, are twofold American sniper. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the whole story of Chris <laughs> Kyle. Yep. Phenomenal book. Awesome. Um, that's a good one. And it, he's just a great leader. Good person. Like you get an idea of, what people sacrifice for our country that you and I, unless you served, I don't know if you guys did, but like, I, I have no idea. I can't even fathom the stuff that they've done. And then the other one is a book called good to great, good to great goes through, uh, I think it's five, maybe seven different companies that were mediocre and hit a massive inflection point. And they talk specifically about what that inflection point was. And one of the interesting things uh, I'll give away here is like, the companies that had those massive inflection points and took off, like Walgreens is an example, right? They compare mm-hmm. Walgreens to CVS. They were trending along together. Walgreens brought in a new CEO from within, an important point there, from within, mm-hmm. and it took off and absolutely catapulted and crushed the stock market for a 10-year period of time. But one of the interesting things is all of these transformative CEOs that they talk about in this book come from inside, started you know, not nearly at the top of the food chain mm, and work their way up through. And it's like an inspiring story for anyone that works for anyone. But it also is just like a understanding of like the people that have had their asses in the seats and actually work for this company at different levels along the way, understand better how to move this in the right direction and what the market actually wants. Wow. Wow. That sounds like a great Yeah, book. that sounds like a fantastic yeah. read. Um, I'll make sure those are yeah, in our show is. notes. Yeah, we'll put those in the show notes. Yeah. All right. Well, let's wrap things up here. And uh, this has been a pleasure, Taylor. Thank you for coming on. If you guys are interested in finding Taylor on social media, checking out his reels, we'll make sure to put the links to that in the description. Anything else you want to shout out, Taylor, before we hop off? No, I appreciate you guys. Thank you so much for having me. This is a lot of fun. Um, hopefully my my garbage that I spewed throughout the time was helpful. <laughs> no, this was great. <laughs> it this was great. Really yeah, I really info. I really enjoyed it. I'm not it much great meeting you. <laughs> yeah, uh, media guy here. I'm not much of a trader, so to me this was actually very entertaining and very um I learned a lot this episode. So, I know our audience is going to love it. Yeah, for yeah, sure. Great. I appreciate it. Keep the, keep the lies coming. I'll take them. Take them. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Alrighty. Awesome. We hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Taylor, thank you for coming on, and we'll see you guys Later, in the next guys. one. Thanks so much. All right. Later, Taylor. All righty.
Thank you.